Welcome, friends, to the Happy Pill Podcast. I am so excited to have this wonderful guest today, Brad Shreve. Nailed it. Right? You did. Thank you. Good. Perfect. On the first try, I'm so pleased to have Brad here and tell his story. I can't even get into the story because it is so vast. It is so important to hear his truth, hear his story of what he shares with me is how far can you go down a dark hole and still come out of it? That is that is just amazing. But first, thank you, Brad, for coming onto the show and sharing your story. I'm looking over here because I'm seeing you on my screen, even though the camera's there. Well, thank you for having me. I... <laughs> I really enjoy your show because you talk about serious subjects, but it's not all somber. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for that. Oops, hit my mic. But yes, thank you. That's so nice. I'm, I appreciate that. Yeah. So many of us are depressed enough. We don't need another show to remind us of how depressed we are. <laughs> right? Totally. I, I know the last few episodes I've put on there, they are heavier, but honestly, like I love doing giveaways. I love doing, you know, just talking some fun stuff and just keeping it real and making it a little lighter as much as I can, as much as the content allows, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Brad, let's just start talking about you for a second. Like, where are you from and what do you do? Well, I'm originally from either Michigan or North Carolina, depending on what time of my life that we're talking about. So depending on where a person is from, I'll say Michigan or I'll say North Carolina, depending. Uh, oh. But currently I live in a town called Apple Valley, which is located in the California desert. A great name for a town, town in the desert, Apple Valley. There yeah. is a story behind it. Look it up. It, it's pretty hysterical. Um, well, let's just say in the 20s, people thought it was a great idea to plant apple groves, not realizing in the 30s, maybe we'll have a drought. <laughs> so anyway, um, but the name totally. stayed. But I'm about two and a half hours outside of Los Angeles, where I lived for over 20 years. And when my father-in-law died, we moved, well, when he was sick, we moved up here. And after he died, my husband and I moved here permanently to help his mother. And as far as what I do, I'm not able to work. I've never been released to work since I've been diagnosed. But what I do is I'm an author. I've had two published novels and uh, one published short story. I do self-publish, which is my preference. And uh, I podcast. What are those names, though? What are those names for the books? uh, First one is A Body in a Bathhouse. And the second one is A Body on the Hill. And it is a a LGBTQ mystery. Uh, And the protagonist is a gay private eye. Cool. And where can people find these books? Uh, Amazon. They can find, if they want the ebook, it is exclusive to Amazon. Uh, I sell my soul, but Amazon, if you make it exclusive, does pay dramatically higher in uh, royalties. However, the paperback... You can buy anywhere, and I ask that people go to your local independent store. They won't be on the shelf, but they can order it for you, and they need your help, especially after the uh, pandemic. Yeah, absolutely, right? Let's keep these small businesses thriving. And I'm sorry, I had cut you off. What is your podcast? You said you're a podcast host as well. Yes, I had two. Uh, The original one was uh, Queer Writers of Crime. It still exists. You can find it. I hope to keep it there forever. It went on for three years, and I interviewed LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. It sounds very niche, and it is, but I will tell you, out of 150 episodes, 
I barely scratched the surface of the number of authors there are. So it's not as niche as people think it is. That is cool. But then I decided I want to talk more to a variety of people. So I I, uh, launched in November, Queer We Are. I'm having a great time with it. Uh, The guests really enjoy it. And on Queer We Are, I talk to successful LGBTQ entertainers, athletes, activists, politicians, etc., and everyday folk. And the key is when I'm talking about success, we're not talking about get rich in a year. Mm. Each individual defines success for themselves. Right. And almost yeah. always it has nothing to do with money. Right. So we talk about what made this successful and how did they get there. So well, can can I come on to the show? You I'd may. Like yeah. I'd love to have you as a guest. Perfect. Are you successful? How would I define my success? It would have to be in alignment with my healing and how far I've actually come and how much I've grown and learned and have managed my PTS, TBI, ADD, yada, yada, all those kind of conditions. I've really come a long, long way. So Done. that you is what I, oh, perfect. We will schedule a time. Thank you. That was a stressful question. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Me. I'll ask my guests, like, yeah. how do you? how do you define your success? What, what makes you successful? And they'll say, well, I don't know if I'm really successful. I, I you know, I don't have a big career or a lot of money. And I'm like, right. whoa, 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 whoa. You would not be on this show if you weren't successful. We already had this discussion. Right. Okay? Now let's start again. How are you successful? And then they go with it. So, right. Nice. Well, look at that. We're actually starting on something. Do a little cross cross pollination. Exactly. Uh, right there, which I love. Absolutely. So thank you for explaining all of that. And we're going to just dive in right into your story here because it is vast. It is in depth. And like you said, so let's talk about this dark hole that you talk about. Okay. What is that? When did it start? What happened? Basically the five W's and how of this dark hole. Oh, where do we begin? Because, oh, the troubles I've seen. Uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you the shit really hit the fan around 20 years ago, about 2011. Uh, that was when I was diagnosed and, and I became, I couldn't function. But looking back, this has been a lifelong thing. I have a question, uh, though. I, I'm sorry? What were you di- I have a question, though. Like, what were you diagnosed with? You kind of skipped over I was that. diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Okay. And I would tell you the day I was diagnosed is next to my daughter being born is the best day in my life. And people think that's crazy, but Mm. it is the day that I'm like, oh my God, it all makes sense. Yep. It all makes sense now. It has a name. It has a name. I understand it. And now I know there's actually something I can do about it. It's validation. Exactly. It's something you, it's something you couldn't put a name to. You you were just feeling and experiencing things. And now you've got this name for it that you can start to understand it and break it down. Yeah. I mean, I call myself crazy. It's kind of one of those things. Like if you have mental illness, you can call yourself crazy, but other people shouldn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, but I mean, I thought I was the stereotypical crazy and it was nice to know, no, there's, there's an illness here. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so then continue now that you have this diagnosis, that was a big relief for you next to the birth of your daughter. 
And then what happened? Uh, what happened? I'm going to go step back a little bit before okay. then, because uh, as I said, this has been going on my whole life and I was yeah. uh, self-medicating actually since the age of 10 with drugs and alcohol. Uh, it was a regular thing. When I was 16, a cold stream behind my house, I kept a bottle of vodka and orange juice there so I could have a screwdriver on the, on the, my way to work, which is you know something most school kids do. Uh, so I'm like, how at 10 years old, do you know how to make a screwdriver? <laughs> no, 16 is when I learned to make a screwdriver. Oh, sorry, 10, 16. I just drank beer and smoked, smoked oh. which, you know, oh and I God. never liked smoking either cigarettes or pot, but it was cool. So I did it. Okay. And, uh, so that actually went on for some time. And when I really, really realized that something was wrong, I mean, I would have been off and on with psychiatrists and been told I had depression off and on. But the big factor was in 2003, we're coming up on my 20th anniversary, uh, is when I got sober. And my friends in the sober house, after we were released, their lives were getting better and my life was getting worse. Aww. And I didn't understand why. Worse to the point that I went from being an executive to I was living in the streets. Okay. So I, I like to tell people my life... If to look at it positively, it was an incredible adventure. How many people can say that they sat on a sailboat uh, drinking mimosas and eating muffins off the coast of St. John and slept on a park bench at the end of the Santa Monica Pier? Yeah, you can't say that. Not many. Well, I do. I can, you know, I can share those great experiences. And I slept on the bus a lot. And uh, I knew something was wrong. And I, I, no matter where I turned, I couldn't get the help. So I was mm. dragging my duffel bag around. Uh, trying to find jobs, but it was so incoherent. There was no way it was going to happen. And at one point I went to the uh, department of mental health in Hollywood and was on my hands and knees crying Aww. to begging them. And I, I can tell you, here I was living on the streets in food lines. And I was told we can't help you. You're too high functioning. Oh, wow. Well, that was news to me. So, <laughs> so yeah. eventually, for whatever reason, my life did start to get better. I uh, did get a job with a major coffee chain, not Starbucks. And my career started to grow again. Uh, and like in past careers, I'd have these great days where they thought I was the best employee in the world. And then the next day, they're like, we're ready to fire you. Right. And one day I, I really had started to move up. And one day I just stopped showing up. Hmm. It, it wasn't, it wasn't even anything I could, I thought of. I just stopped. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I didn't call the company. So my employees were in scrambling. Like, what do we do? The company that was calling me, nothing happened. And that was the point where I really stopped functioning. Unfortunately, I was in a relationship at the time. Uh, I had a lot of uh, clear mental problems before then. My wonderful husband married me anyway in 2007, before I was ever diagnosed. Mm -hmm. uh, why he stayed, I don't know, but I'm very grateful he did. And the way I got diagnosed is, again, I went to another mental health center and was told, in fact, somebody that worked for the Department of Mental Health said, when you go in there, you need to convince them that you are ready to kill yourself any second. You need to make them think that you are crazy, crazy, crazy. And because their job is to turn you away. Wow. We don't have enough spots. Oh, That's wow. The, so, so I went in. I did the best acting job, clearly, even though I live in 
uh, Los Angeles. I'm not a good actor because I was turned away again, again, for being too high functioning. And this is the worst part. They said, when you get worse, when you get worse, come back. But okay, so define high functioning, because they've, they've put this label on you right away. And so what does that mean? Because I mean, if you're that desperate, and you're asking for help, I don't understand how they're refusing you. I mean, I guess the demand must have been high, but describe high functioning. Oh, that's a good question. I was able to communicate. Um, I was always clean. Even when I was homeless, I don't know why I stayed clean. I can't remember what I did. I went to places and uh, for the most part, I was able to communicate at that point. Um, It's only when things suddenly got worse that I couldn't. That's the best I can do. I don't know what they define as high functioning. As I said, the, the LA jail is the largest mental health ward in the world. So because what? there just are not enough mental health clinics in the area. So, in fact, wow. I have a sister-in-law that's now sitting in jail who is in serious need of mental health. Fortunately, they have a program now they're trying to weed her out into a program. But she's been there for three months. And Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, but fortunately that didn't happen to me. But what happened is after um, the bottom fell out and I was a- unable to go to work, and I started having the hallucinations and I had these incredible mood swings, which I've had my whole life, but it, you know, it was far beyond what was normal. And mania was the biggest challenge. I was nonstop working all day long, mm. but I had 30 projects going on at once. So I was the busiest man in the world that got nothing done. Wow. Were you burnt um, out? Like, were you, were you exhausted by doing that? Um, maybe after three days of staying uh, awake for 24 hours, I would kind of crash. Oh, my gosh. But, but it was exhausting physically. Just, you know, I can feel my whole body. There's just constant movement. Right. Yeah. To give an idea of just where it went when things really fell apart and I stopped showing up for work. Here, Here's the deal. I was going through these manic stages where I just could not function. I was just constantly nonstop Two long periods of depressive. I couldn't get out of bed. Right. Now with bipolar disorder, most people go months in a manic state and then, mo- then we'll go through months of a depressive state. Oh my God. I have what's called rapid cycling, which means okay. I could be manic in the morning and depressed in the afternoon. And then there's what's called hypomania, which this is not a really good, people tell me that's not what it is, but the best way I can describe the way it feels is you're manic and you're depressed at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's at least what it feels like. Wow. So that... Go ahead. I had the hallucinations. Uh, there was a dog and cat and there was the donkey and I really missed the donkey. Uh, I, <laughs> I, will, I actually even then laughed about because I knew they weren't real. So I joked right. about it. It was kind of fun. There were moments where, oh, what is the term where disassociation, Okay. which I had a problem dealing with reality. And the the way it manifested in me is I would be walking across a room and I would stop because I'm like, I don't think any of this is real. And for anybody that remembers the very first Matrix, there's a scene in the beginning where Neo Uh, Keanu Reeves reaches his finger into a mirror and pulls away and the mirror is sticking to his finger. That's kind of where the world I thought I was in. And I would, Mm. I would actually stand in 
my in the center of the room for minutes, half an hour maybe, right? afraid to touch anything because my hand would go through it and prove to me I was right. It wasn't real. Wow. And usually the best way I was able to get out of it is my husband would catch me do in that state and he would grab my hands and he would say, feel the floor. If it wasn't real, you would fall through the floor, feel the floor. Mm. And that would help me get out of it. If he wasn't around, I would just finally just close my eyes and hope and pray and fall into the bed. And when mm. I didn't fall through the bed, I'm like, okay, I'm okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's getting grounded, right? Getting grounded in what can you see? What can you feel? What can you smell, taste, touch? Yes, you know, exactly. that technique. Yeah, exactly. And I did become agoraphobic. I was scared to death to leave the house. Uh, I, if I really pushed myself, I could go to the mailbox, but that was as far as we could go. Right. There were maybe three or four times where my husband did finally convince me to go to the supermarket. Right. And all of them turned out to be a nightmare because I would be fine for a few minutes. But once I was in the hospital or in the, in the, once I was in the supermarket, yeah. uh, every light and every color on the boxes and every sound and every voice came at me at one time and was so wow. overwhelming. I would run out the door. I don't think I ever screamed, but mentally I screamed. And there may have been a right. point where I physically screamed. I had to run out the door and just hyperventilate until he was done shopping. So, wow. uh, completely oversensitized, right? Yes. Senses are just like off the charts. Oh yeah. Yeah. A wow. Anything, uh, uh, was just too much for me to handle. It reached the point that I couldn't talk hardly. I couldn't talk to my husband. Mm. And I don't know for those that are familiar with second life, it is a virtual world kind of like what, uh, Facebook is trying to build. It's been around mm. for a very long time. It was hugely popular at one point and it's died. But it's a virtual world where you can be anything you want and do anything you want. And you can mm -hmm. have jobs and build things and make a living. I had a beautiful beach house in, in Second Life. I had a job uh, called um, Bradley's uh, Beach Bungalow where I sold uh, uh, bamboo furniture. Um, my husband and I would go dancing together. We would chat. Yeah. Yeah. But he would be in the other room because if he was with me, I couldn't communicate with him. Oh, interesting. And I, as crazy as it sounds, I really feel that was part of what saved my life. Interesting. And it, it was so, fun so too. This is, is this Go a ahead. virtual reality app? Is that what it is? Uh, it's, um, it's, yes, it's an app. It's, uh, uh, it's a website that you can log into secondlife.com I think it is it still wow. exists you don't find many people in there anymore like you used to mm. but I had two jobs while I was there three jobs I had uh first I started as a stripper I made pretty good money as a stripper okay. uh, and uh fully functional we will say yep. uh then I became a nightclub promoter and my job was just to keep people entertained and and so I would get lots of tips and then I opened my own business and what there you do you when you get this money is you buy nice clothing and you buy a, right. a, a, a new face so you can look fabulous. And oh, uh, there okay. are people that became millionaires selling virtual real estate that didn't exist. It's just, so anyway, oh. that was my life for the longest time. Right. And 
occasionally we would go to church. I'm a Unitarian Universalist. And if somebody was talking to me for more than 30 seconds, it felt like my head was like, like cauliflower, like somebody was reaching in and ripping it apart. Wow. Holy cow. So like, so once you received that diagnosis, because obviously like that is a lot to be experiencing and I commend you now for just being so aware that you're able to share this information, which is, which is huge. So what started to happen, you know, after that diagnosis that would start this healing journey for you? Um, well, I will say you just mentioned it. I always had enough clarity to know something was wrong and I knew yeah. I had a mental illness, but what I don't know. And I couldn't get the help. The way I got to help help is a friend of ours who is a minister also had bipolar disorder. And okay. she said, here's what we need to do. You're going to go to the hospital and, and you're going to be suicidal. And so that's right. what we did. And she said, I'm going to go with you because I think if your minister is there, they'll help get you through. So they took me to the hospital. Uh, I said I was suicidal. They immediately put me in the psych ward. And I was there for hours sleeping on a bench before the psychiatrist finally came in and said, we decided you're, we're going to send you home. And I said, what? What? She said, you have your minister friend. You have your husband. You have a, you have a good support system. We're going to send you home. Oh my God. And I said, I'm not leaving. I refuse to leave. And she was like, what? I said, I am not leaving here until you can guarantee me when I step out that door, I have somewhere to go for help. Wow. I need to know that's going to happen. So she vanished for about an hour, hour and a half. And she finally came back and said, here's the number, call them tomorrow and you'll get in. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Wow. So it, it took a while to get diagnosed. I was going and finally one day they sat down and they said, you have bipolar disorder. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't really say I, it out loud, but my brain sure did. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, few things that go through my head is like, uh, it's about fucking time, you yes. know, that, that they could finally get their act together, this mental health community and say, yes, this is what you have, you know, and two, also congratulations, because it's like finally getting that relief and answer. You can start this journey somewhere, you exactly. know, so that that's what goes through my head. It's uh, wow. So w take us from there. What, what was going on? What was going to be happening? What was well, your little journey? People that are skeptical about meds helping with mental illness and yeah. does even mental illness even exist. The way I explain it to them is you have other organs in your body that, that don't function properly and you have to take medication for or, or surgery for. And I said, especially think of a computer. A computer is a very complicated machine and it crashes and we don't think twice about it. It's frustrating as hell, but it happens. Well, the brain is billions of times more complicated than a computer. So why would anyone be surprised that sometimes it, it just doesn't work right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I am of the belief that it is a chemical imbalance. You know, everybody has their own theories. And so what that means though, is everybody's chemical imbalance may be different. And so mm -hmm. a drug that works for you may not work for me. Mm -hmm. So the process of finding the right medication when, when you're diagnosed with bipolar disorder can be a very lengthy process. I think it took three years before we got oh, wow. to where I was at least a little bit stable. 
Yeah. Um, most of the meds helped or they didn't help at all. There was one med and I'm not going to name the name because it helps millions of people, right. but it made me violent and I attacked my husband. So that, oh that shows how different they can react to different people. Wow. So, so I Sorry mentioned to it to that. a woman one day and she goes, oh, I'm going to make sure my son never takes that drug. And I'm like, no, 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 no. But she wouldn't listen to me. So uh, that's why I will not mention the name. And okay. so, and also I went to bipolar support groups that helped tremendously. Uh, it was nice to hear other people uh, going through the exact same thing I went through. Mm-hmm. That helped. And another thing that really helped me was I had a blog for 10 years. Mm, yeah. And I logged the whole process. And it's still there. If anybody wants to go to it, it's insightsbipolarbear.com. There we and go. Uh, I will say this as an author, do not judge me based on that blog. Because <laughs> it's just rambling, <laughs> randomly trails of thought. And yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Later, as I got better, I did more medical studies. But yeah, don't judge me based on it. Grammar, punctuation, none of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people, I, I keep it up because whenever I try to take it down, people send me emails and say, that was really helping me. What happened? Oh, okay. so, well, that's good. It's still yeah, active. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So no reason. It, it costs nothing to keep it up. It costs pennies a year. So mm-hmm. um, those were the big factors that really got me stable. Right. Now, what helped keep me stable is I started becoming more involved in Buddhism, which I had studied a lot throughout the years. I've always been uh, very fascinated by the Buddhist practice and and always Mm -hmm. believed in it. Am I Buddhist? Sometimes I call myself a Buddhist. Sometimes I don't. Most Buddhists will tell you they don't care. It doesn't matter. I believe in the Buddhist practice. And it yeah. doesn't matter. It's it's like, yeah, maybe you're one religion at one point, maybe you're one philosophy at another point. I mean, it really is such a personal journey. You can take aspects from everything, you know, because it can relate to you however it relates to you. It comes to you when you need it. I'm I'm sort of learning that as well through my therapy and stuff. It's a lot of more of the the Buddhism, the meditation, the mindfulness, you know, to help bring some more balance and focus to my PTS and, and everything. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's whatever tools that you need at the time when you need it, you know, and no, who's to judge, who's to say what's right or wrong. Exactly. And what works for somebody may not work for someone else. We all have our own Mm -hmm. spiritual journey. It's what worked for me, the mindfulness, the meditation, uh, the state of acceptance. Those are very big. Mm -hmm. And uh, a person I followed that I really like is Lama Sirya Das. He writes, uh, he's very down to earth. So his mm-hmm. uh, um, teachings are not difficult to understand. And he really meant a lot to me. I'd gone and seen him a few times when he spoke in my area. Uh, and that really helped me a lot. I don't practice it as much in a formal environment as I used to. I do still do the meditation. I still try to keep in that uh state of acceptance mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a work in progress and that is will a be. Tr- it is a challenge that is a challenge yeah um but i'm gonna tell somebody if they want to study buddhism and don't want to get too involved in the whole religious side of it there is a mm-hmm. book out right now it's sold 10 million copies the subtle art of not giving a fuck right and if you listen to that book <laughs> it is buddhism because it's basically saying all this shit that's happening around you, 
don't give a fuck because there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Which is Buddhism, yep. just in a very fun way to listen to it. So perfect. It's a good book. I highly. I I'm not usually into self help books, but that one wowed me. In fact, um, I think my partner has that one. I I think we have that somewhere on a bookshelf. Yeah. I suggest <laughs> taking it off that shelf. Okay. Yeah. I've never it, read it, so maybe it's something I need to do. You learn something. He's very entertaining at the same time, which is not easy yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So. The way I became an author is I was still, it was still very a, a struggling period in my life, but I, we have a coffee table book that's called Men Together. And in that book, there are photos of, it's, it's mostly a picture book, a photo of uh, men together, couples. Uh, there actually happens to be another one we have that's called uh, Women Together. But anyway, in Men Together, I was reading one of the stories about one of the couples and one of them had bipolar disorder. And he said, when I accepted that I was never going to be able to work for somebody else, I had to realize what am I going to do for myself? Mm. And it was one sentence and it hit me. Like I can't express how like it was just aha moment in my life. Yeah. And I said, well, what have I always wanted to do? And I said, it's be a writer. Mm-hmm. So that's when there I started writing. Yeah. Uh, it was a pro- It took me 10 years to get my first book out, only about a year and a half to get the second one out. Um, but it's so worth it. It's, it was a dream. Uh, I, I love doing it. It's been well-received. Um, yeah. And so writing has become a, a part of your therapy process, you know, part oh, of yes, your lifestyle. Definitely. Yes, definitely. In fact, it's funny. The, the protagonist in my story has PTSD uh, because mm. he survived uh, going to war in Afghanistan. And I talked to, I downright interviewed a large number of people that survived the, both Iraq and Iran who had PTSD. And I said, let me tell you how my sobriety went and what I had to go through. And they're like, that's it. That's exactly what the process we went through was. Mm. So without realizing it, I was right. I was telling my story. Yeah, because he's still tra- struggling with you know, uh, PIs and mystery novels. They they all have their struggles, and that was his. Oh yeah, or still is, and uh, so it was more therapy than I even realized. Mm, that's amazing I, I, for me because I I used to have lots of journals. I would journal all the time, and I'd have the same thing. The thing is, I would never go back to reread it because whatever I was emoting was then on paper, and then that was it. I moved on, and so my podcast has actually become a, a tool and therapy as well. You know, especially when I'm talking about difficult topics. You know, I'll actually write it out because it's just too challenging. I'm like, I don't want to miss any points because if I just do it naturally and then I start talking, I tend to miss some stuff. So that's when I start to write again. And I used to write some stage plays as well and create characters. And before I kind of knew it, I didn't realize for the longest time that a lot of what my character was going through was me releasing some of my experiences just in a fictional setting. So, you know, that was one avenue that really helped me that I would like to get back into at some point, even doing like audio dramas. I think that would be fascinating to do. Yeah, it it helps a tremendous number of people. And you don't have yeah. you don't have to want to get published. Who cares? So or and I some people do. do it. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all want the we all want the attention. And of I'll tell you what, do. when you work so hard on something that is so from the heart, it does feel good when somebody buys it. 
Yeah, it's There's validation. No no, yeah, yeah and, and, and it's resonance, right? Like they're they're relating to your work. They they love it. They admire it. So exactly, yeah, yeah, I dig and it. And I will say that is actually what led me into uh, podcasting mm. because I didn't even know there was an LGBTQ plus mystery suspense and thriller category on Amazon. It, I didn't know it existed. Neither did I, I thought all queer novels were romance, and that's why it oh, took me yeah. ten years. I was trying to write a man romance novel. And I'm not a fan of romance. I've read a few that I like, but it's just not my thing. Right. So here I was trying to write something that I didn't have a passion for. Mm -hmm. And it had a secondary, I kind of tried to do a Hallmark thing where there was a, a romance with a mystery story kind of shoved in there in the background. Right. And when I discovered gay mystery novels, because they used to not be called LGBTQ, uh, I was like, oh my God, this exists. So all I did was take that same novel and flip it. So there is still romance, but it's now the secondary story. Right. The primary story is the actual mystery. And I realized if I didn't know this genre existed, there's probably a lot of other people that didn't know existence. Doesn't yeah, exist. I didn't know. So I said, I'll start a podcast. I had no idea what podcasting was other than the name. And what I didn't realize was how much of a passion I would have for podcasting and it's equal to being an author. Yeah. And like I said, my, my book, my, my show is about success. Once a week I do a, an interview that lasts about mm, 45, 40, 45 minutes long. And then uh, another day of the week, I do a five to 10 minute monologue of either my experience or things that I learned, you know, read or, or whatever, just kind of an uplifting thing. And one of the things I shared is a, a friend of mine who's written 75 novels. Uh, I talked about his success yeah. and I said, but you know, I've only written two novels. I have one tab on Amazon. He has 13. Wow. And I said, but I am equally successful because I made a choice. Mm. And the choice was, I love podcasting and I love writing. Yeah. And I knew that one was going to overtake the other. Hmm. Therefore, as I said on that show, it's unlikely I'll ever write 75 novels. And because my writing overcomes my podcasting, it's unlikely I'll ever sign an exclusive contact with Spotify. But I'm doing two things I love at once and I'm doing both the best way I can. And that's, and that's, that's what it makes right me there. feel successful. That's it, right? It's like you just nailed it right on the head is, you know, and it's, it's become such a cliche too when we, we say to people like, do what you love, you got to do what you love. And so many times, and definitely myself included, it's like, well, I, I would work to work, you know, and, and I don't work right now because I'm on long-term disability still, you know, really challenged with some PTS. And, you know, and it's like, what, would I love to do? You know, I've always been fascinated by the arts. You know, I've I've studied film video, I've I've studied performance, and you know, got into this world of podcasting because I need to create, you know, and it's just like I, I feel now, especially going through this and especially learning what I'm learning uh through therapy and everything, is that wow, I kind of missed out on a lot of stuff, not just mm -hmm. because of PTS, but also the fact that I wasn't doing the things that I really loved to do. 
you know, because I've, I'm coming from a family. It's like, okay, well, what job did you get? Did you get enough money for this? You know, um, how are you doing financially? And then there was always this financial, uh, struggle that I had. And that was always kind of emphasized and it was just another, uh, pressure point on me. And it's like, I just want to do this, but I didn't feel that support. Like it was, it was not unconditional. It's like, well, okay, if you have to do it, then okay. You know, I'm happy for you to keep writing or creating or something, but you know, I have to find that unconditional love and support for what it is that I want to do, you know? And that's, that's what's keeping me going. I love doing the podcast. I I'd love to have a, a schedule and, and everything, but it's, it's challenging. And as you know, you know, with your symptoms and everything, I mean, for me, sometimes I cannot put one out every week. I, I just, I'm like, no, I can't. I'm, I'm working through too much. I'm too tired. I'm too exhausted. I'm too symptomatic and I, I need to break. So, but it has become such a passion project for me. And listener, I'm going to tell you, you have no idea how much work Ursula has to do to put out a 35 minute show. <laughs> if you only knew. <laughs> oh my God. It is like, it's, it's exhausting getting the editing and I love putting music in and just getting the sound right. And just, it's a lot of work. And there's so much to podcasting now that I didn't know after I took my two and a half year break. But I mean, you know, right? Like you understand the, the work that goes into putting an episode. It's not just talking into a microphone. Yeah. I moderate a uh, podcasting group and yeah. It one, it's always changing. But number two, mm-hmm. it 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 people come in and they're like, I don't know what to do. I want a podcast, but I don't know. I don't know what I mm-hmm. want to do. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of work, you know. Tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Looks like you want to say something. Uh yes. Um, back to what you were saying about you know, what society expect to, expects of us as far as work goes. There was a commercial years ago, and I wish I could remember what it was for. It may have been for a job advancement company or whatever, but it was black and white and was very uh, rigid, and people were just kind of like working their jobs, like push, turning cogs. And this woman very sternly, her hair was pulled back and it's black and white, no expression on her face, and she says, Hard work is the reward for hard work. And I thought <laughs> that is some that that is way too many people's lives. Yeah. And yeah. so one thing I want to say when I talked about me being successful in my recent episode, and I talked about uh the the friend of mine that's written 75 novels, one thing I point out, and actually the title of the episode is Don't Change Your Life to Change Your Life. Because he wrote those mm. 75 novels, getting up at 530 every morning and writing for an hour and a half before he went to his job as a teacher. Mm. So maybe you do have to have a job that, well, I think he loves being a teacher, but maybe you do have to job that isn't your dream job, but doesn't have to mean you have to toss everything out Yeah, to do. We have, we all have dozens of definitions of what success is, and maybe mm-hmm. you can't reach them all. Find the one that you can do that will give you the most happiness in that space and do that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, so as we're just winding down here, I'll give you the, the last final thought that you would like to offer some of the listeners, uh, some advice, wisdom that, I mean, you've already shared a bunch, you know, but just a final thought to 
and uh, wind up this episode. Okay. I'm going to give my favorite quote, and I think I created it. And I'll <laughs> have to give a quick explanation because not everybody is aware what a do-over is. Do you know what a do-over is? Yeah. Okay. People in the UK tell me they haven't heard of it, and some younger folks do. A do-over is when you're given a dare or you're playing a game and you and you fail. You can yell, do-over, and do it again. So what I tell people is every morning is the opportunity to just get out of bed and say, do-over, and then do it over. Nice. Yeah, because you never know how it's going to turn out the next day. It's It's kind of a twist on that cliche of today's the first day of the rest of your life. Absolutely. Just a little more fun way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Brad, so much for being on this show, sharing your amazing story and your healing tools. And we're going to take your information and put them into the show notes so that, you know, people can look you up and listen to your podcast, read your books. Would definitely love to do that. So thank you again. And for listeners, thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate you coming in from all around the world because, you know, mental health does not discriminate. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Brad. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you require more support and information on depression, please contact your local health care provider, distress center, or in Canada, go to canada.ca and search mental health support, get help.